0: This time of year always has me reflecting on those certain individuals who made the greatest impact on you. Me. For myself, there's perhaps no wiser person I've known than a specific elderly individual I once knew. An aged, vibrant soul with skin like delicate wrinkled paper and a voice like wind through the branches of a mountain tree. This person carried his gentle frame, venerable as a centuries-old turtle, with a soft touch like that of a river stone made smooth through time. His ancient eyes twinkled with wonder like pools gathering at the foot of a waterfall at nighttime, reflecting the endless sky above a sagacious thinker who truly lived a teacher that exuded knowledge and humility with every breath and shared his lessons with any who cared to learn i'm talking of course about the marvelous mysterious professor fantabulum given name phineas q fantabulum esquire the brilliant inventor toy maker candyman circus aficionado, trained and certified whimsicalist, bon vivant, and master of curiosities, beloved the world round. I can still picture his famous polka dot bow tie and rumpled purple coat. I knew him during my community college years. I was a fresh-cheeked wannabe journo on the school newspaper hungry to have a story of mine finally in print. One that wasn't about boring things like new coffee flavors being offered in the quad, or how the parking lot was set to be resurfaced again. I suggested an interview with the owner of the locally famous eyesore of a house that sat prominently up the hill from the campus. People uncharitably knew it as That one place with all the zany crap all over it. Things like a life-sized giraffe in a top hat and monocle in the front yard and a big red arrow pointing to the mailbox in some sort of visual gag. Little did I know this suggestion of mine would change the course of my life. Professor Fantabulum was a sort of local joke to the neighborhood. They'd refer to him as a Willy Wonka type with a dash of Mary Poppins mixed with Amelia Bedelia and Mrs. Piggle Wiggle and a smidge of Belle's dad, Maurice, from Beauty and the Beast. Had they seen what I was lucky to see inside his home, they would have felt so stupid. To the untrained eye, Professor Fantabulum's house felt like one big mechanical toy boots that kicked bowling balls down tracks that then tipped over one comically large domino piece, that in turn tilted a kitschy watering can. Another device involving a goldfish bowl on top of a record player that for some reason slowly rotated, winding up a reel of twine that when fully bound, initiated a contraption whose sole purpose was to put a hat and scarf on top of Professor Ventabulum's head during breakfast. Like I said, he was a brilliant genius. What started as an assignment to put a face to what many saw as a local kook became a sort of apprenticeship. Fantabulum took me under his wing. Many a days were spent with him telling me of far-off adventures in Egypt or expeditions further down beneath the Earth’s surface than anyone had ever ventured. Stories that made Jules Verne and H.G. Wells look like a couple of duds at open mic night. I became a kind of acolyte and grew to understand and even love the professor's worldview, which he had boiled down into three rules that he lived by. One must always make time for laughter. One must never grow old. And one must be curious beyond reason for reason, my dear boy, is the very tip-top end of the question mark, and so the story. I can hear him now declaring such aphorisms while miniature airplanes mysteriously zipped around his home. One time he had an entire opera company staying with him, and when their busty star was singing in the shower, Professor Fantabulum stopped what he was doing to harmonize along with his loyal beagle Amadeus and then the rest of the dogs in the neighborhood joined in. He was always bringing about misadventures like that and also through his wild inventions. To this day, I still don't know how he invented a soap you could eat, but he sure did it. I always knew when he was out of town because his signature hot air balloon, Rosie, would be gone. He had a platform built onto the roof of his jalopy of a house. During those times when he was away, the professor would have me house it to keep Amadeus company and water his plants. Which included several oversized Venus flytraps wearing sunglasses, who could be quite sassy at times, and a flower whose petals somehow changed color with its mood. When the professor returned, he'd always have bound up packages from places like India and Peru that I had to help carry in and always delivered souvenirs for me to take home into my humdrum drab student's life. My favorite thing he ever brought me was a chocolate harmonica from the King of Belgium's personal collection. Yum. Time passed as time often does and my visits to the professor became more and more stretched out. By then I'd transferred to State College and I tried to visit him when I was home for the holidays and. Sometimes he'd be there and sometimes not. The times he was home, I'd increasingly walk in to find him, I think swearing to himself. One specific time I noticed his personal office had stacks and stacks of documents spilling all over the place and empty pizza boxes scattered throughout that he claimed belonged to a band of mimes who just left, which seemed doubtful given all the pizza stains on his pinstriped candy-colored silk shirt and the fact that he'd always told me he was superstitious about mimes and didn't trust them. Adding to the situation was the fact that the Rube Goldberg device in charge of giving Amadeus a bubble bath was out of order, leaving the poor dog all alone howling in the bone-dry bathtub with a shower cap stuffed over its eyes. It was clear Professor Fantabulum was having trouble keeping up with his own normally amazing lifestyle. Then along came Internet which befuddled him completely. Between my new life of study groups and social gatherings, I did try to communicate with the professor via email, but he never seemed all that excited for it. Looking back, I think computers confused and maybe even saddened him. I began to feel out of touch with the professor. So, after I didn't hear back after I'd invited him to my graduation, I decided to pay him a visit. His home was still there, though approaching it felt less festive, less celebratory and whimsical. The big red arrow pointing to the mailbox was dilapidated and graffitied, and the life-sized giraffe vandalized completely with its eyes missing. I recall knocking on the door and finding it yet again unlocked. Upon entering, I noticed the place had fallen into a state of complete disrepair. All the Rube Goldberg devices were non-functional, now covered in dust and cobwebs. I was first greeted by Amadeus, who, though old, bounded up to me with an enthusiasm for an outside party to finally come and incess the familiarly dour and overly ignored situation. Professor Fantabulum's marvelous collection of wonderful and amazing contraptions were non-operational. It felt like I'd walked into the sad, somber house of Mrs. Havisham only, instead of dreary table settings and the like, there was tons and tons of dead, wacky trinkets Worst of all, I noticed all around, a bunch of those electronic devices that look like little hockey puck speakers you put in your home, on the mantle or dresser or whatever from that huge global e-commerce company owned by that bald guy with a weird laugh. <laughs> those devices you shout commands to, like turn on the patio lights or order me some more laundry pods. And they all have human names that sound pretty approachable, but also seem like they have their SHIT together. Mindy, Tessa. The professor had become obsessed and mesmerized by these electronic devices, neglecting all his analog, wonderful contraptions in their stead. He thought they were simply amazing, ingenious devices, He didn't seem to understand that you only needed one, or he had become a hoarder of sorts with these kinds of convenient tech devices. He also carried multiple Roku controllers in his robe pocket that clattered around as he gave me a warm hug, and no longer wore his fancy dress of yore, except he did have his unkempt polka dot tie loosely hanging around his neck still. The robe looked generic and dowdy, a bland, tan color. He wasn't and smelled of soup and liquor. In that order. I noticed the mechanical part of the boot that used to kick the bowling ball was rusted and... The bowling ball itself was all the way across the room next to a tipped over and sadly dead giant Venus flytrap still wearing its sunglasses. I asked the professor if he traveled anywhere exciting lately and he said no, only Paris. I said that seemed pretty exciting, and he said he meant the Hotel Paris in Las Vegas, Nevada for an inventor's convention. He went on to tell me that the entire trip was a disaster. The airline he'd taken there had lost most of his baggage, and the few remaining doodads he did possess were stolen away from him via three-card Monty Street hustlers. I told him he should be more careful and he said Careful had nothing to do with it because it was his theory that the Hustlers were actually hired goons working for world-famous prop, comedian Carrot Top, and he believed the performer sent them to steal and ultimately adapt Fantabulum's inventions into stage jokes, but I doubt that was the case and told him as much. Admittedly, the theory did intrigue me, and I haven't looked at Carrot Top the same ever since. Fantabulum said after he'd been mugged in Vegas, he did still make it to the convention during the closing hours of the event, where most had packed up and the few presenters that were still there were peddling futuristic high-tech gadgets with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities. These were sleek, screen-based items controlled by phones, tablets, and computers, instead of the things that Fantabulum was accustomed to inventing. For his part, he just couldn't understand why things like his famous surfboard with giant bouncy springs on the bottom, aptly titled the Surf Boing, had fallen out of fashion. He was also saddened to hear of the passing of one of his most beloved contemporaries, Dr. Squigglesworth, who had a grand piano fall on him from a very great height with such force that when they found him, his mouth had piano keys inside it. It sounded like a horrid sight. Penniless on the strip, the professor was both confounded and flabbergasted by the intensity of lights around him and surprised to learn that even his mob contacts in the town had gone away. Frankly, it's a wonder the professor made it home alive, and he only did so thanks to a French buffet chef who he recognized that was clocking out of his ship at the time. The two of them had once sailed on the same ship together through the Cape of Good Hope. Many years ago, altogether the Vegas experience had given the professor a scare like nothing else, and he found himself homebound for the longest he could remember in a state of shock about the world around him. He wondered where the whimsy had went, and stayed up all night working out math equations on a chalkboard attempting to predict and confirm the next great age of marvels and how to set up shop at it's epicenter, wherever and whenever that may be. Quietly, I thought to myself, the time of world's fairs and stuff like that was gone forever. Vantabulum told me that during these times of unrest, he did not sleep or eat, and Amadeus the Beagle fixed most his meals, and how at this time, this often meant the professor subsided on dog food when human food was not available, and actually that 99% of what he ate was actually dog food at that time. Somewhere in there, he'd fallen dependent on the modern convenience of the aforementioned e-commerce devices and continued to fall out of touch with the colorful characters that once populated and enriched his life, either through his continued hermitage or the cartoonish fates befallen these friends, like the tragedy of a great and famous clown named Banco who had sadly perished in a clown fire in a car unsafely stuffed with 33 other clowns driving up the grapevine in Kern County, California. Others had hit him harder like Francie Francine Dumond, his dear watercolorist of a lady friend who was still very much alive but had decided to spend more time with her grandchildren and therefore became unreachable. The professor was essentially alone and so alone found little time for his previous delightful and marvelous inventions. I asked him how he passed the time normally, if not inventing, and he said he mainly stared at things. The wall, outside, the floor, sometimes roofs. I asked him what he thought of during these staring spills. He said that's just it. Nothing. Nothing, I repeated because even nothing can be something in the right company. He looked at me, shaken momentarily from his trance of malaise, and replied, Dear boy, the greatest balloon filled with the warmest of air cannot help to rise in the wrong atmosphere. I was picking up what he was putting down, metaphorically speaking. He was speaking to a sort of... inertia. To the withering of whimsy in a land so obsessed with the rising and grinding and less so with the patient dreaming with the split second bottom dollar with the flavor of the month and rapid rate luxury without gentle and steady latitude i decided to respond with my own metaphor so as not to put too fine a point on things i said well that may well be true professor but isn't the flame within the balloon hidden from all but the fire starter isn't that what matters most to which he responded not for those who can't see past their own basket. I sensed we were strained too far from my grasp on hot air balloon vocabulary and the point at hand. I don't know why it was so important that I talked the professor out of his existential nosedive. Why I needed to convince him that his whimsy, his machinations, his contraptions, and most importantly his zest for the road less traveled was worth preserving. I suppose I needed to convince myself. Here, for me, was a bright and shiny lifetime example, a distillation of an attitude I'd always counted on like the rising of the sun, yet never pursued fully myself as wholeheartedly as a sad slumped man crumpled before me. I'd taken the professor for granted. Selfishly drawing inspiration from his example like it was always there for me to draw from like a well of water I'd assume would never go dry. Never appreciating that proximity I'd had to this living proof one could honor their deepest, silliest wits and whimsies, their fantasies, and not just making a habit of it or a hobby, but be it, and have the world respond in kind. I'd never question what it took for this to occur, or that it might have an end to it. I just assumed the professor was the wind, the air, inside my balloon. He was a sort of nature, an element of the world, of my world. A truth in which I could find comfort when the humdrum of my years threatened restriction. He lived in the clouds so I could have a place to visit. Far off land, a place to hang my hat. Perhaps Professor Phineas Q. Fantabulum still was that element, and I was only now seeing it in its fullness, seeing not just the glowing center, but the faded horizons. Perhaps this force waned like a resting wind into stillness as well. Perhaps it set like a sun at the end of a day at the beach. A sunset. Perhaps the illusion was believing it was meant to be forever, when instead the thing, whatever it was, was to pass through him, then through me, then through another and another and another and another and another, like a flame from torch to torch. And that was what had the professor down. That's what made him lose hope in his marvelous creations. Creations like his elegant pancake matic or the fire station pole he acquired from quote opposite land that seemingly defied gravity, or the pet potato that wore funny pants. Bearing all this in mind, I spoke before I thought as though my heart had shoved all reason aside and had taken over the engine of my brain train. I said to the professor that I understood if everything he'd ever had to say and do had been said and done. I understood this, but I asked him if he could keep going still, not for the sake of the world or even for himself, but for those still eager to bask in his whimsical warmth like myself and his dog, Amadeus, who at the time let out a yelp of agreement. Most importantly, I told Professor Fantabulum that I believed his greatest invention had yet to be completed. And whether it ever came to be or didn't was never the point. The point was the spirit and momentum and the fact that I had been able to witness even the smallest smidgen of this. To me, this was the highest honor. And though the strength of my feeling in this matter would too wane as time moved my heart away from this moment, the important thing is that it had happened. That was the point. And here Amadeus the dog let out more barks and a howl. The professor looked up. Tears welled up in his eyes. Then they trickled down his ancient cheeks onto his polka dot bow tie. The gloss of the tears added a renewed sparkle to his eye. He stood, looked at me rather quizzically, and then he looked at his dog, and finally said, I believe you've made me remember something very important. The professor then put on his signature thinking cap, a pork pie hat with some wires wrapped around it, then thanked me with a hug and a handshake. He said he'd been stricken with a marvelous wondrous idea and that he must act upon it immediately. And with that, the professor was off. I watched as he tied on his cape of wonder, pulled a full candy bar from a jar and flipped it to Amadeus, tapped his cane once, twice, thrice, and before you could say wonder most wondrous, he was in his hot air balloon, rising up, up, up sailing through the great blue sky like an element unleashed. I felt a deep swelling in my bosom and a conviction that all was once again right in the world of dreamers. About 20 minutes later or so driving home, I saw his hot air balloon parked outside a dilapidated porno theater in the seedy part of town. I slowed down and noticed the professor haggling with the owner. I got out to see what the business was about and as I approached heard the matter at hand. The professor had offered to purchase the theater with pure gold ingots he'd been gifted from a sultan. Naturally, the owner was dubious as the professor went on to explain how he'd known the original proprietor of this very building and had always nurtured a dream of turning it into a playhouse for dogs. Off the porno theater owner's confused and angry face, I tried to be helpful and asked what do you mean playhouse for dogs like a doggy daycare and the professor said no like a live theater a venue of dramatic arts but with dogs as the audience i blinked a little stunned at the outrageous idea even by the professor's standards i wanted to ask more questions obviously like would the actors be dogs too or would it be mixed with some humans and some dogs on stage and would humans be allowed in the audience At this point, the porno theater owner thought this was all set up. I intervened to explain that though it seemed fantastical, the professor was indeed making an offer in earnest and I could vouch for his follow through regarding this matter. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more I recalled over the years seeing mock-ups in Fantabulum's house for what indeed did look like, I realize now, a playhouse for dogs. Only now did I put two and two together. Suffice to say, I had learned never to doubt the professor when he got an idea in his head, even as far-fetched as this one. Pun definitely intended. Especially when he was wearing his thinking cap, which was blinking like crazy at this point. So, long story short, that's what happened. Professor Fantabulum turned an old porno theater into a playhouse for dogs. To answer the question of casting, the performers were mainly all humans unless the part called for a dog to be dog, which rarely happened. Humans could buy tickets to see the shows, but they had to wear a pair of dog ears and couldn't use human voices. There was an especially stirring production of *Medea*, where the lead performer was none other than Annette Benning herself. Humans performed for dogs. And let me tell you, this theater, it was beautiful. It was majestic, it was an honor to grace the stage is what most performers said. The professor, it seemed, had done it again. I can still remember that picture-perfect opening night with a full house of pugs, collies, greyhounds and boxers, of wiener dogs and labradoodles and terriers and bulldogs and everything in between all seated in their designated seats like good doggies waiting for the house lights to go down on that first production of Death of a Salesman for dogs. I caught a glimpse of the professor watching it all play out from backstage. And as I looked at him, I could see that smile, that same warm smile that always appeared on his face when what he'd imagined had become reality. When the performance that night had finished, the professor was nowhere to be found. Which, I don't know why, but I sort of expected. He had pulled off his prestige, his opus, his grand finale. Now, if you ask me what eventually became of the marvelous, mysterious Professor Fantabulum, well, I can't say. The last I heard from him was a note he left bequeathing his dog Amadeus to me a responsibility I honored completely until the city took my dog away. Some say the professor walked into the ocean on a starlit night and swam off with the mermaid. Others say he fell into a deep slumber on a cloud and floated off with a passing wind. As for myself, I like to think he's still out there tinkering away Dreaming up inventions that puzzle and perplex the brain. Buying up old porno theaters with gold, then turning them into dog theaters, where humans perform for dogs. Yeah. That's how I imagine it. This episode of The P-Files was written and performed by Ryan Sandoval with music by Eric Jorgensen. Be sure to check out more of Eric's work at jorgensenaudio.com and on Bandcamp under ericjorgensen.bandcamp.com. And also check out his podcast, The Glow, a music and sound experience. It's really engaging, peaceful, and hypnotic if you like our music here you're gonna love that show I also wanted to announce a sweepstakes we're gonna be giving away our official hand mug t-shirt and you can enter to win by going to Patterspod.com slash subscribe and signing up for our newsletter and guess what if you're already signed up for our newsletter you're already entered to win these are beautiful puppies these shirts I got a mint green design with red and a black and white design that just really pop. You're going to love them. The deadline to enter is February 10th. So enter now and you might even win some other goodies. And as always, please share, rate, and review us as much as you can or as much as you care to. It helps, it helps. My God, does it help. Until next time, see you in a thriller page.